Are we well? Ish? Ish? Do you want to turn to Luke chapter 14? We continue in our Luke series. Uh, wrong number. No, wrong number. Luke chapter 14. We're going to read from verse 7. Um, David already, even though it wasn't last week, David already dealt with verses 1 to 6 because uh, a couple of weeks ago, three weeks ago was it, um, David preached on uh, the woman being healed on the Sabbath and there's another incident a short while later in the first six verses of Luke chapter 14 where there's a man who's healed on the Sabbath so we just put the two together for David to preach on them in one hit because of the same theme and the same message. So we're skipping a few verses ahead from where uh, David last left off last week at the end of chapter 13. We're now in verse 7 of, verse, of uh, chapter 14. And just to remind us of the context, therefore, Jesus has been healing this man on the Sabbath at a dinner party. Jesus has been invited to a dinner party um, uh, with, with the ruler of the Pharisees who's hosting it. And Jesus is people-watching while he's there. And he just, again, as you'll discover in the little story he tells, um, he's speaking into this problem of humanity that all across the ages, um, humanity has either loved to jostle for position, to seek prestige, to seek out honour, um, or to resent not having the confidence to do so, and getting trodden on and shoved aside and ignored and forgotten and so on. And this kind of power shuffle, we see it in politics all the time, don't we? Uh, as part of the course in politics, we also see it in the workplace sometimes. People jostling for position, jostling to be seen and heard, get attention and affirmation. Um, unfortunately, we do see it in friendship groups sometimes, trying to be the alpha and the beta and so on. Uh, even more unfortunately, sometimes we see it in families, don't we? And even more unfortunately, we do sometimes see it in the church. And Jesus wants to speak into this, this seeking of affirmation of where it's coming from and, and what... what what to do about it. It's a human problem that needs a godly, as always, a godly solution. So let's read uh, chapter 14 from verse 7. We're just going to go through to verse 11. And it says this, is at the dinner party, uh, now he, Jesus, told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honour. And I'll explain that in a minute. Saying to them, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honour, Let someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame, walk of shame, isn't it? You'll begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place. So that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. And then you'll be honoured in the presence of all who sit at table with you. But everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And then he goes on to tell another parable about a great invite to a banquet that we, we looked at uh, just before Easter, when we did our back, a great invite service with the kids, do you remember that? So uh, again, in a couple of weeks' time, when John uh, continues for us, we'll skip that, that section as well. But it's, it's all, and I'll mention that in a minute, again, it's all part of the same theme that Jesus is speaking into. And we just need to understand the context of what's happening at these dinner parties, why Jesus is describing it this way and why he tells this parable. Because at a big ancient meal, they sat on couches where you could fit two, three, maybe four people per couch. And they do them in long lines 
together to, to form a U-shape. So you'd have um, the host would sit at the centre of the base of the U, if you like, looking at it from above. At the base of the U, the host would be in the centre, and then the most privileged positions, the places of highest honour, were immediately on his left and right. And they decrease in honour, according to where you sat, further away from him, and then up the arms of the U, right to the very end, near the toilets, or wherever it is. And, uh, and that, so the, the power and the prestige resided closest to the host, who was at the middle of the U. Does that make sense? And so here at this dinner party, one Sabbath, it says the guests have been watching Jesus. In verse 1, just in the bit that David uh, looked at a couple of weeks ago, it says, one Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. So they've been watching him, scrutinising, trying to catch him out and trying to work out how they can find a way in to, to catch him out and so on. But it turns out that Jesus has been watching them. Um, as they come in and they've been settling down for the meal and they've been mingling with their little hors d'oeuvres and their little glasses of champagne, having, having the olives, uh, before they sit down for the meal, he's been watching them, he's noting their body language, he's noticing their, their kind of glances, their sly sideways shuffles. If, if I loiter, it's like musical chairs, you know, there's a music, you think music's about to stop. If I just linger by this chair for a bit, then I'll get it before anyone else. So you can see at this dinner party, if I loiter near the base of the U, when they, would you like to take your seats? Oh, thank you, I'll be right next to the host. That's the plan. Or maybe they're even moving the place name to like you get at weddings. I want to sit over there. I'm going to move my place name. So Jesus has been watching them, trying to get this certain chair first or catch the host's eye and so on. Jesus has been noting their every move. And it's like a, it's like a wildlife commentary. He's watching he's behind the bush, kind of watching them work out their like, group dynamics. It's like, as a leader, as the leader, Simeon here as the host, he's getting the pick of the feeding spots, but he's, he's wary because he's now aware that he's now feeding alongside old enemies. And he has two particularly ambitious rivals amongst the group. Simeon's toes are beginning to twitch. There's a nervous tick that he can't conceal because here comes Mordecai. And Mordecai has long sought the top spot. And yet over here you've got Saul, this tempestuous kind of younger male with an aggressive streak. And this troop is together for the first time in months and jostling for good feeding spots can lead to clashes. That's Jesus' commentary over the wildlife documentary. That is actually a transcript of David Attenborough talking about chimpanzees. <laughs> I've just changed the names. But it's the same thing, isn't it? Jostling for the good feeding spot. Jesus, while they've been watching him, Jesus has been observing this sly power struggle at the dinner table, and he speaks up. And he says, basically through this parable, he says, when you get invited, don't gun for the big seats. What are you doing? Because if someone more important than you turns up, you're going to be uprooted, you'll have to do the walk of shame, you'll have to sit at the far end of the table literally eating humble pie. But instead, he says, go for the lesser seat, and the host might even then big you up in front of everyone. What are you doing down there? Come and sit up here. And Jesus is saying their current behaviour is actually counterproductive. What are you doing? It's just going to work against you. And so he ends up saying in verse 11 at the end, all who exalt themselves will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. And this is a phrase that keeps coming up time and time again, either those exact words or in other ways. Jesus says it over and over again. Uh, for example, Luke chapter 18, when he's comparing a religious leader who, who's bragging about his supposed righteousness, and Jesus is comparing him to this tax collector who recognises his pitiful sinfulness. Jesus says... Anyone who exalts themselves will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. It's the other way around. 
And then again in Matthew 23, he uses exactly the same words again. When he's talking about the scribes and the Pharisees seeking prestige without having the right heart posture behind it. Again, he says in there, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. Or he says it in other ways. Jesus is, is almost like a, a stuck record, but on purpose. He's like, I want to make sure you get this. It says in Luke chapter 13, the previous chapter in the passage that David dealt with, verse 30, some are last who will be first. Some are first who will be last. And then in Luke chapter 22, he says, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. And this runs right through God's intent for mankind from his heart, from the very beginning, right through to the end. We see it through the Old Testament, this theme of ultimate, it's ultimate reversal. His kingdom is upside down, isn't it? And he's flipping everything to get to the heart of the problem. It has deep roots in the Old Testament. Solomon gives advice in Proverbs chapter 25, verse 6. He says, Don't put yourself forward in the king's presence or stand in the place of the great, for it's better to be told, come up here, than to be put lower in the presence of a noble. It's exactly the same situation. And then I love in Ezekiel chapter 17, if you recall a couple of weeks ago, I was preaching on the kingdom about the mustard seed, tiny beginnings, great impact. It's how his kingdom works. And I read from Ezekiel chapter 17, the prophecy through the, through the uh, prophet Ezekiel, where God is saying, I'm going to take a twig from a tree, I'm going to take a sprig from that twig, the tiniest of beginnings, and I'm going to plant it on a high and lofty mountain, and that is going to grow into a tree that is so big, all the birds of the air will nest in it. It's describing his future coming kingdom. And that very prophecy, it continues, God says, and all the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord. I bring low the high tree. And I make high the low tree. I dry up the green tree and I make the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. Right from his heart, he's never changed all the way through. And Jesus is just saying this out loud time and time again to anyone who hear. This theme of ultimate reversal. And all throughout what God is doing, he is, he's, he's warning us against seeking standing amongst men instead of kneeling before God. That's what it boils down to. Why are you seeking standing before men? At the very least, you should seek kneeling before God. And when you've done that, you won't seek that. It's Jesus' point. He's not, you can misread what Jesus is saying in the language of this parable and think, well, here's how to connive to get greater honour. You know, if, if I want the best seat, I need to put myself in the lower seat and then I get called into the good one, so I've got it. And that's, how I, that's the route I need to take. That's, Jesus isn't saying that. You know, if, if I keep quiet and get left until last, he'll give me pole position. Jesus is not saying this is how you get the high position. Instead, he's saying that honour is not something to be grasped in the first place. It's given. Very different. God honours the humble. And if we are truly humble, if we are not seeking standing amongst men, but we're seeking to kneel before God, in which case that heart posture will dictate that we automatically realise we have no right to any blessing or honour in the first place. And therefore, anything we do receive is not earned, but it's a gift. But this is in all of us, to varying degrees. This is a human problem that requires a godly solution. 
Leonard Bernstein was a very famous conductor and composer from the US. He led the he conductor and led the New York Philharmonic, Philharmonic Orchestra in the 60s to great acclaim, to record-breaking success. He wrote the music for West Side Story. I'm so pretty. What, what a, I hate that film. Um, why, when you're going to have a fight, do you start doing all this? What's all that about? They're not manly. Anyway, Leonard Bernstein was this great composer, conductor, and so he knew about instruments and playing and musicianship. And someone once asked him, what is the most difficult instrument to play? And he said, second fiddle. Second fiddle. He said, I can get plenty of first violinists, but to find someone who will play, Mick Norman, someone who will play second violin with just as much enthusiasm and eagerness as they will playing first. And he said, the same problem with second French horn or second flute, it's the same problem. But to get anyone to play second violin with as much enthusiasm and eagerness as if they were seeking out or given first position, he said, that's a problem, and I can't. He said, but if someone doesn't play second, we have no harmony. Equally essential. It's like for us, for example, even in church, just ask yourself, do I pick up a tea towel with as much enthusiasm and eagerness as I pick up maybe a microphone or a team leader position. Do I do that? It, it pricks at the heart, doesn't it? People, we humans, naturally seek prestige or affirmation. It's a human problem, and it's one that needs a godly solution. So, all well and good. What do we do with this? We can observe the lesson. We can agree with it wholeheartedly. We can say, yeah, that's me. I'm not doing anything about it, don't we? Because I still not click about where it applies to us. I can see that problem in other people. Yeah, that person, three people along, definitely needs to hear this. I'm glad they're here this morning. And as Jesus is like, yeah, I want to talk to you. These religious leaders here, they're marked by pride and selfishness. And so Jesus, he goes on in the next verses, like I say, to do another parable about a great banquet where he's telling the host to not invite people who can repay him. It's all very well. At this dinner party, the host could be going, yeah, guests, listen up. This isn't how you get the seats. And Jesus is like, no, I've got a word for you as well. It's the same problem. Don't invite people who are going to pay you back. That's not what it's about. Time and time again, he's saying to the guests and to the host, not, not, don't connive for what you can get out of this, but seek to give. And as Jesus' followers, we are to be marked by humility. Not seeking to get, but seeking to give. As uh, James says in James chapter 4, verse 6, again, he's, he's also quoting a, another proverb. Um, he says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Do you want, do you want more grace? It doesn't come through pride. It comes through humility. It's not standing before men, it's kneeling before God. That's where you receive the grace that we don't even deserve, and that's why it's called grace. Boy, do we need it. Our... Um, our current society, our modern society, is still wracked with this problem, this disease, as in any other period of time. It just presents itself in different ways. And narcissism is a problem in our modern Western world. Narcissism means being self-centered, having a high um, sense of self-importance and so on. It's based on the story of uh, the Greek myth of Narcissus, who was a Greek hunter, who becomes so transfixed by his reflection I mean, to the extent that he doesn't even eat, it becomes the end of him, becomes the death of him. He's so caught up and so absorbed with himself, it, it means his end. And so that's where the name narciss narcissism comes from, about getting caught up with yourself. 
And it's increasing in modern Western societies, it's on the increase to the point of it becoming in many, more and more people, more and more of these traits are showing, uh, even to the extent of it becoming a personality disorder, which results in a deep need for excessive attention and affirmation, but also troubled relationships, aggression, uh, uh, lack of empathy for others to the point of outright abuse. It's happening more and more. And this increase, not just in the specific disorder, the extreme version, but even just the presentation of more and more narcissistic traits in us, in the West. Um, this has been referred to as a narcissism epidemic. It's been monitored and, and, and watched and studied and, and commented on. And there, there are fewer studies in the UK, I'd like to find some more, but there's less of it going on here in terms of studying it. But in the US there's been lots of data that's already come out over recent decades. Where One example, for example, um, Thousands of students were studied over, over a long period of time, and the results are suggesting that narcissistic personality traits grew, they rose at just as fast a rate as obesity from the 1980s to today. And we all know openly that um, obesity is increasingly a problem over the past 40 years, particularly in the US, but also here. We know that's an increasing problem. At the same rate, narcissistic personality traits have increased. It's a problem. Even just looking at our tellies, these days, how many TV shows there are now about getting fame, becoming famous? We didn't have those 30 years ago necessarily, did we? It's just signs and symptoms everywhere around us. It's on the increase. Now, I just need to say, having a decent self-esteem is different. You can be settled and you can be confident in the person that God has made you to be without thinking too highly of yourself. That's quite different. For example, to, to be narcissistic is to say, I am the absolute bee's knees. I am the cream of the crop. I'm the best. Whereas the opposite of that would be defeatist. You know, I'm rubbish, I'm stupid, I'm ugly. Neither of those honour God in how he's made you. To be humble is not a middle way. It's not a... It's not a hybrid or a compromise between the two either. It's not, humility is not a middle way, it's a third way. And humility is to say, I'm not the absolute bee's knees, but I'm not rubbish either. I do recognise my strengths and my value before God, but I'm no, I also know I'm no more valuable than the next person, whether they're wearing rags or finery. If you remember, when I preached on humility back in February as we were working through Luke. It came up before. Jesus obviously wants us to hear it twice this year. Listen to that. I don't know. But in there, I've mentioned a Rick Warren, US pastor. Um, he describes humility this way. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Now, let's look at that another way just so we can make sure we can fully grasp this. Muhammad Ali, we all know who he was. Incredible, remarkably successful boxer. I saw the back of his head from 10 feet away, so that's my claim to fame. As he walked past my basement door in a bookshop to do a signing upstairs, I saw him walk up through the basement door. Um, he once said, it's hard to be humble when you're as great as I am. <laughs> and then he later went on to say, I am the greatest, is, is his classic line, isn't it? That, he was a very good boxer, and I'm sure that sense of uh, skill and ego probably gave him the pit that he needed to win half his fights because he believed in himself more than the other guy. I'm sure. I'm sure that helped. doesn't mean it was good. <laughs> that's, quite, that's narcissistic. 
That is an overinflated sense of self and, and ego, isn't it? But you can compare him to the Apostle Paul. Now, the Apostle Paul is Mr. Church Planter Extraordinaire, wasn't he? God. <laughs> Turns up in Philippi, leaves a week later, another church plant. It's like, hang on a minute, you're only there eight days. He also wrote nearly a third of the New Testament. There's, there's natural acclaim heading in that guy's name for, for good reasons. And yet, he described himself in 1 Timothy chapter 1, he says, Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. And then also in 1 Corinthians 15, he said, I am the least of the apostles. And you're thinking, really? Well, let's just put it down on paper. Let's do the for and against column. Let's find out. Might disagree. But this is how he described himself. I'm the worst of sinners and the least of the apostles. And yet the same guy in Philippians chapter 3 says, brothers, join in imitating me. And in the next chapter, uh, Philippians chapter 4, he says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. Can I say that? Actually copy me? I hope so, but I don't think I always get it right. Don't always copy me. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Paul could say that. Now, how does that work? This man, who considers himself the least of all the apostles, the worst of all sinners, and yet he commends himself as a worthy example to be followed. That sounds like someone who's defeatist on the one hand and narcissistic on the other. (laughs) How do you carry that? That is not inconsistency. That is true humility. That is the third way. Because what he's saying here is a man who recognises the mercy upon him as a lowly sinner saved by grace and a man who has been called by God into helping others grow by, by his example that God has enabled him to be. There's humility. See, he's not seeking standing amongst men. He's, not, he's considering himself lower, not higher. But instead he seeks to kneel before the living God and to embrace being all that God has gifted him and enabled him to be. It's very different. And that is why, therefore, with confidence, he can say, copy me. It's beautiful, isn't it? But even more simply, Paul knows what he is. He's a sinner saved by grace. He also knows who he is. He's now a son with a purpose. It's beautiful. Having that attitude changes everything. And we no longer end up living for ourselves amongst man. We now live for our Father and Him only. Artie Kendall is another American pastor. He used to lead Westminster Chapel here in London for 25 years. He's now retired back home in the States. He tells this lovely story about a a pianist, a very young pianist. He He was a child prodigy. And he was playing his first concert at the Royal Festival Hall some number of years ago up in London and his reputation this kid his reputation preceded him so much that the concert was sold out on the very day the tickets went on sale and that night as he finishes his final piece the crowd literally it's a Royal Festival Hall it's a bit la-di-da but the crowd goes wild and 2,000 people leap to their feet cheering him on and uh, as they shout and as they cheer, he, this young pianist, he, he just bows very quickly and hurries off the stage. And um, the, be- the audience, they just keep going, and they're begging him for it to come back on the stage. It's a true story. And the stage man who's whispering to this kid, go quickly, they're yelling for you, get, get back out there. But this young man, he doesn't move. He stays behind the, behind the curtains. And instead, he, he just peers through a crack in the curtains, and he's just looking, scanning this crowd, and he goes, oh, I, can't, I can't go out there. Can't do it. 
And the stage manager starts getting a bit annoyed with him. I was like, what are you doing? This is rude now. They want you back out there and you're refusing. They said, look, they're on their feet and trust me, this place, they don't do this very often. This is not that kind of crowd. So you need to go out there and you need to enjoy this moment because this is pretty unique. But the boy, he continues to scan the audience and finally the stage manager, he cracks and he just shouts, get out there. They are, they, they are standing for you. And what this lad says, he looks back at him and he whispers, they're not all standing. He said, do you see that old man, second row from the back? He's still sitting down. And the stage manager says, who cares about one old man? He says, I care, that's my teacher. Makes you cry. He said, that's my mentor. And said, when he stands, I can take that bow. I never found out if the teacher ever stood up. Maybe it was horrible. <laughs> but look, this point is beautiful, that 2,000 people were applauding the sheer magic of this young lad's skill. But the young musician knew in his heart that none of that mattered unless his teacher, his mentor, approved. He wasn't playing for an audience of thousands. He was playing for an audience of one. And that audience of one is the title that Artie Kendall then turned into a book about humility which Bob Benson is currently reading on holiday. It's called Audience of One. And that is just, am I living for him only? Wherever I am, whenever I am, or am I living for the affirmation and acclamation of others? Do I live for an audience of one? See, at this dinner where Jesus is speaking into, there is competitiveness running right through this. They're all jostling for a higher position, aren't they? It's competition. If they'd been living for an audience of one instead, God himself, they'd have totally ignored themselves and be pushing others into higher seats. No, no, after you. No, please. And Jenny and I, we tussle over the good seats, don't we? We go different places, go to the cinema. Do you want the aisle? You have the aisle. Stretch your legs out. And there's, no, I want you to have the aisle. No, I want you to have We end up having a fight because I want you to have the better seat. Or I'll drive home. You can have a drink tonight. We're out of places. No, 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 no. No, you have a drink. You enjoy yourself. I'll, I'll drive. That kind of thing. It's a, it's, we tussle over this. It's a good fight. But does that extend into other situations I find myself in? I hope so, but Holy Spirit, reveal to me if not. Don't let it just be there. Let that be my life. And that is the only form of competitiveness you'll find that the Bible is okay with. In fact, it commands it. Romans chapter 12, verse 10. Paul says, Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honour. Outdo one another in showing honour. If those guests at that dinner party have been, uh, been outdoing one another in showing honour, they've been fighting so that the other people get the better seats. No, 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 after you. No, I want the rubbish one. No, 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 it's all right. Uh, yeah, I've got a bit more padding. I'll have the rubbish chair. It's all right. No, after you. I want to sit near the toilet. Trust me. I'll be over there if you need me. They'll be fighting to outdo one another and to get the other people to sit in the better seats. Living for this audience of one, not for others, not for ourselves. As this passage carries on and we follow Jesus' story to the cross and beyond, over and over again, as always, through these parables and these life lessons and so on, it becomes apparent that the key is not trying to get, but instead it's looking to Jesus, the one who gives. And not only does he expect it of us, his people, to reflect that, to give, he's led by example, so that we can copy his example of giving because he's given so much to us. At this dinner party, if anyone should have got the best seat, it should have been Jesus. Yet at no point 
At no point does he fish for it. Does he outright ask for it? Does he demand it? Nor does he get offended that he doesn't get it. His example is a perfect one. He has every right to have the best seat in the house and yet he doesn't seek it out. We never see Jesus on the take, do we? We always just see him on the give. The one he deserves to take it all. So much so that he gave of himself entirely, not just in social settings, but on the world stage at the very centre of history and the cosmos, he gave of himself that we might get. Philippians chapter 2, I was just talking to Joey earlier, it's just time and time again, the last time I preached on humility, I've ended with Philippians chapter 2. I thought, I can't do that again. But you can't preach on humility and not end up with Philippians chapter 2, can you? Let's read it. Philippians chapter 2 from verse 3, just a beautiful, incredible passage that speaks right into this. Paul says, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That doesn't mean a thing for him to grab, he already had it. He didn't consider it something to not let go of for a duration. But instead he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. God himself, who made the universe, who sustained the universe, was willing to give himself up even to death on the most, the most um, awful and shameful of deaths, culturally and physically and emotionally and psychologically and spiritually. It's the most awful of deaths. As he carried our selfishness, our ego upon his shoulders, our broken sense of self-worth, he carried that on the cross because that was getting in the way of us being righteous and holy before him. And he dealt with that for us. Humility is at the very heart of God himself so much. He didn't just put it into words, he put it into action. And because of that, the invite is still possible for us to be invited to his table. You see, here is a feast, back in Luke 14. There's a feast where people have been invited. They're in. And yet they're still jostling for position. Even though they're already, they're in, you're in the room. Who else, gets, who else is here that isn't here? There's plenty of people that aren't here. You're in. Why are you trying to get a better seat? You, you got in. And you and I, we get invited. We have been invited. Jesus has extended his invitation to all of us to sit at his table. God of all gods, king of all kings. My first question is, are you in? Are you in? If not, here is your opportunity to step into life eternal. Life to the full, sitting at the best table, eating of God's own, eating of God's own delights, and most importantly, you're enjoying intimate and unhindered friendship with the good king of all things. Do you want that? If you haven't got it, come and find one of us afterwards. We'd love to pray with you. See his face together. Receive his invite and step into the best place. Now, the Christian life is not the easiest life, but it is the best one. Because you're living with the good king of all kings, made pure and clean once and for all. And if you have received that invite and you are his and you are following him, you're, you're in. So why do we still try to push ourselves higher? 
We're in. Why do we think it matters where we sit? In his church, in the workplace, wherever it might be. Why do I worry about what other people think of me? Am I living for an audience of one or am I not? Why do I think it matters who gets a different amount of recognition at different times compared to me? Why do I think that matters? I belong to him. Best place to be. It can, it can be easy to feel affronted when someone gets a role you wanted or, you're, or they get praised for something and you'll think, what about me? I haven't got any praise. Does it matter? You belong to him. Audience of one. In church particularly, we need to really live this out, don't we? But also elsewhere as we go, as Christ's people, we need to live this out loud. We should applaud others and not seek applause for ourselves. He recognises you. You're not, you're not forgotten. You might feel it, but you're not forgotten. He has got his eye on you. Whether you're naturally more noticeable to other people, or you're tucked away in the corner. I'm, talking about, I'm not just talking about on Sundays, but I'm talking about life in general. Whether you're out front or behind the scenes, his eye is lovingly upon you. He knows you, he knows the number of hairs on your head and you are equally cherished. Just live for an audience of one, that's all you need. So let's seek to humble ourselves before him. Let's seek to humble ourselves before others. Not in order that we might give, get, but in order to give. Let's, let's be outdoing one another in showing honour. Because we have already been given so much, haven't we? Amen. Let me pray. Father, we have so much in you and we have not earned one speck of dust of it. It's all because of you. You've enabled it. Lord, we thank you. Thank you, thank you. Let us not for one minute think we're more valuable than the next person. Let us just seek out your face, our audience of one, that we will live for you, not for ourselves or for others. That we might be competitive and outdoing one another and showing honour to each other and to those around us for your glory, for the praise of your name, to point to you that our lives live you out loud in actions as well as words. May we not seek standing amongst men, but may we seek to kneel before you at all times, we pray. And you only. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.